All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. A podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And today is a uh, very controversial episode that you can find at actualanarchy.com slash 24. And today we're going to talk about the movie Hacksaw Ridge with my co-host, Robert. How are you doing, Robert? Hey, everybody. I'm back. We're doing a controversial thing. So if this isn't your cup of tea, if this is the wrong time of year to be talking about, you know, some shit about the troops and the horrors of war and you want to have fun, happy memories of this sort of thing, just just turn this one off because, uh, I mean, I'll we'll try to be a little bit, some you know, balanced about it, but I don't like pulling punches. So, you know, we're doing it. Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. And, and I just want to point out that uh, anyone who's upset by this, just remember that you tell yourself that you are defending our freedoms. And even if you don't agree with what we have to say, that you defend our right to say it. So just remember that as we get into this, because we're going to get into some things that are not on the index card, so to speak. These, these are going to be some things that are very challenging to what you've probably been told uh, if you were in the military, if you were in even in schooling, if you were watching war movies or reading history books or watching the History Channel, Discovery, etc. We're going to talk about some things that don't really jive with all that. Um, so, you know, trigger warning, folks. Uh, but with that being said, I think that it will be a good episode. We're going to get into a lot of meaty issues, a lot of hearty fare here uh, in a movie that I think was actually really good uh, for the most part. It was well done. Mel Gibson came back. He's a, He's been a, a fairly good director for a number of years now. Braveheart was really good, and... Uh, people were fans of uh, Apocalypto and, and now Hacksaw Ridge. It got really great reviews and things of that nature. And I feel like we have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Uh, do you uh, have any housekeeping you would like to say, Robert? Negative. You could, let's just move it on. I'm not sure you've probably got a few things to say. Well, I do. Uh, so we run actualanarchy.com and readrothbar.com. We've got a bunch of projects going on right now. Some of them are super secret. We'll be sharing with you as we move along. Uh, like I said, this show will be at actualanarchy.com slash 24. Uh, we've got Amazon links. We've got um, Professor Jameen throwing out some really good content. And we've also just got a new uh, presentation on the philosophy of anarcho-capitalism that's going to be posting uh, probably an episode every couple of days. Uh, there's nine in total, so we posted one of the nine so far. So look for those uh, coming out 
but uh, the, the website's growing, and we're getting lots of uh, good writers and content and a lot of commentary on there. There's a lot of comments. There's uh, some people happy with what we're saying and some people not so happy with what we're saying. And, hey, there's no bad press, right? So, you know, let us know what you think. Come, come at us, bro. Yeah, tell us what you feel. Give me, give me all your, give me all your emotional feels and all your emotional arguments. I don't care. <laughs> so, Daniel, you got any more you want to, you want to get into this? Cause, um, I feel like we got a lot of talk about on this one. Yeah, why don't we just get into this? So this is Hacksaw Ridge. It came out just last year and it got, uh, like I said, really good reviews. The Rotten Tomatoes is 87%. 95% of Google users suggest this thing they give it a thumbs up a like versus dislike and it says uh, that this is the true story of private first class Desmond T. Doss played by Andrew Garfield who won the Congressional Medal of Honor despite refusing to bear arms during World War II on religious grounds. Doss was drafted and ostracized by fellow soldiers for his pacifist stance but went on to earn respect and admiration for his bravery, selflessness and compassion after he risked his life without firing a shot to save 75 men in the Battle of Okinawa. And that's the end of the description from Google, which I think this is the second time we've read this uh, Google description and, and found some errors in it. Yeah, who, who's writing these Google descriptions? Because they're always wrong. Uh, if you didn't see the movie, you would say, okay, that sounds about right. But having just watched it a few hours ago, I mean, he was not drafted. He, he signed up. Yeah, they make a big deal about that. Yeah, he volunteered along with everybody else, and that was a big thing. That he took the bombing of Pearl Harbor personally, and um, that he wouldn't have been able to live with himself if he hadn't uh, helped out in the war effort, because they believed that this was a battle against true evil. I mean, this, the the demonization in this movie is complete, I and mean, there are no questions. I mean, except for at the very end where um, where Doss actually rescues, tries to save some Japanese soldiers, but his his fellow people end up killing them anyway. They get killed off screen. Yeah, they say. Uh, yeah, he even put down some uh, some Japs down the hill, uh, but they, they didn't make it. <laughs> right. So, other than that, though, the demonization is absolutely complete. I mean, at one point. The, um, the psych evaluator who is evaluating DOS says that, hey, we're, we're going up against Satan himself. Why are you, you should be super gung ho about this as a religious person because this is like a God, a holy war. And, um, he still too sticks to his principles regardless, even though. Yeah, but, and I think uh, his principles yeah. aren't exactly like ardent and steadfast. I mean, he, he kind of sticks to one or two principles but in a very isolated way and that if you were to look at a bigger picture he was very much not uh, really holding true to what he claimed to be holding true to and we can get into that a little bit later um, yeah because, it was a very simplified like a very simplistic look at the world like as long as I'm not doing this specific thing then I'm staying true to my principles whereas you Kind of like we're going to look at it from the perspective of you're still helping, <laughs> you're still doing things that help the whole system kill and murder. So anyway, well yeah, we'll get into that. 
Yeah, and that that's reminiscent of, of our War Dogs episode where the guy was selling sheets to the military, and we're like, well, wouldn't that still be supporting what they're doing? And, you know, that's kind of our angle on it. Like, uh, what's the old saying? Um, what happened? What would happen if uh, they had a war and nobody showed up? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, all the all the support personnel in the war, like my grandfather, he worked on a uh, repair vessel. Um, I don't think he was actually in any direct combat. I don't know if he was or not. Probably was, but I don't know. As far as I know, he he was only on a repair vessel. Um, but yeah, absolutely. He patched people up and patched things up and boats up and got them back into the fight. So how are you not supporting? They all believe that they were supporting the effort, right? They all, like, whether it's a nurse or a or a, a, a parts runner or a you know anybody even back home. Well, that was the all... big uh, propaganda effort was to say you know loose lips sink ships and you can do it and for our boys and you know all this is is to promote the uh, the war against all the evils in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that probably World War II had vast popular support, especially at home. Um, but that was, you know, back when you were allowed to win a war. These days, you're not allowed to win anymore because you have to have the eternal enemy because that, you know, maintains the uh, industrial complex, the military-industrial complex, where they're constantly needing new weapons and things like that. And because budgets need to be spent every year and they need to get bigger, they can't get smaller, they can't shrink because you have to have your own personal little fiefdom of power. So you got to keep spending and spending and spending, and you got to have at some point you have to have a reason for all this spending. So you got to have an enemy, and what better enemy than one you can never actually kill, never actually win a war on terrorism? Have let's have wars against ideas. <laughs> but yeah, so World War II was back in a time when there was actually an endpoint, where there was a clear objective, and you were allowed to reach that objective. I mean, there are. Um, even in like World War, or I mean in uh, Vietnam, there's all kinds of information that came out after the fact where um, the generals would be like, you know, we want to bomb these manufacturing depots and we want to bomb, you know, these specific targets. And they're like, no, let's not do that. We can't do that. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So you don't actually want to win the war. You just want to be in a war. You want to have a war going. Um, but yeah, so World War II, um, if you didn't know, and who doesn't know at this point, it's a very popular pop culture type of thing. The last good, the last games. good war, right? Right. Yeah, it's the last war against, for some reason, the last popular war, um, because they did a really good job of demonizing the enemy, and you'll see it in the movie. It's absolutely complete, like we said, um, where Hitler was this great evil, and you know the Japanese were this great evil because they were the villains that bombed Pearl Harbor when there's a lot of evidence that shows not only did we blockade and constrict all their resources, embargo all their resources, that they were essentially goaded into doing something to joining the effort and whatnot, but that there's actually a lot of evidence to show that that Roosevelt and others knew of the impending attack and did nothing to stop it because they wanted this big display to anger the people and draw up popular support. And that's what governments do. If you don't do it yourself, you incite it because you want this false flag. I mean, 
going back to the Reichstag fire. And that's how Hitler drummed up popular support to invade Poland. Um, you got to remember the Maine. You've got the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident. You got 9-11. You got all kinds of false flag attacks where that's how you get people to actually support this. Because otherwise, here, here's your argument. Hey, well, let's have this war of aggression where we go out and murder a bunch of people that we don't know we've never met because reasons. Um, you have to have some giant moral crusade purpose, like in um, the first Gulf War, even though they basically said, Saddam, yeah, go ahead and attack Kuwait. Um, once he had done it, it was like, oh, my God, look at this evil villain. He's attacking Kuwait. And, of course, it was evil villain. Right. But, and, and it was the babies and incubators getting thrown on the floor and all that stuff. And, and that was all false. That was all fake. Right. So... I mean, you know, where did he get all those weapons? I mean, we sold them to him. <laughs> yeah, so, the, anyway, Chappelle, uh, the Chappelle show is like, how do, you, how do you know he had weapons of mass destruction? He says, we have the receipt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and, and in the news recently, um, Donald Trump just sold like a billion dollars in weapons to the, the Saudi government. Um, and those people are some of the most terrific people on the planet with all their human rights violations and how many people they behead and all kinds of things going on there. And I mean, just the cycle continues. I mean, but um, I'm kind of getting off the beaten track. Uh, the main point is, is that um, this is a big popular war and it's all over video games and movies. And I, in my view, even though I'm hated um, uh, war, that is of course, mass murder, um, probably one of the greatest, um, television series of all time, in my opinion, uh, is Band of Brothers. Uh, Stephen Ambrose is a beast of a writer, and he was able to really capture that feeling of that feeling of fighting not like, to kill the guy in front of you, but to protect the guy beside you. Um, and that's really, you know, governments really exploit that. They exploit the the impulse of people to defend others and defend your tribe through these false flags. So, and then they demonize the enemy as like less than human or not human at all. And governments on both sides are doing it. So it's really just, you know, these poor meat soldiers just smashing into each other while the people at the top are sitting back and, you know, moving chess pieces on a chessboard. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a great um, Huxley quote, not to sidetrack you too much. No, go ahead. Uh, but he says, quote, the most shocking fact about war is that its victims and its instruments are individual human beings, and that these individual human beings are condemned by the monstrous conventions of politics to murder or be murdered in quarrels not their own, end quote. And that's Aldous right. Huxley. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, who has a personal grudge against some random German guy or some random Japanese guy? Nobody. Right, yeah, right. I guarantee you, you have more in common with the average person in another country than you do with your own politicians in your own country. Absolutely. And there's a good quote, actually, at the end of Band of Brothers, where one of the soldiers, one of the real-life soldiers, was doing kind of like an interview after the fact to get kind of material for it. And he actually talks about how, you know, 
he was doing his job and the German was doing his job and if they had met under different circumstances, they'd probably be friends and they'd probably like to go out fishing or hunting or doing whatever. But here they were in this horrific situation and they ended up killing each other. And it, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it was. If you haven't checked that out. And it, was, it was a total demonization and it even stemmed back in uh, World War One, where uh, the, the teaching of the German language in school was was prohibited and uh, there were testimonies in Congress claiming that uh, the domestic uh, companies that brewed German beer, like Pabst and Anheuser-Busch and all these other uh, German-sounding companies, were actually agents of evil and agents of hmm. the enemy. And that was one of the big pushes for prohibition was a, a, a result of that because it was to say that alcohol clouds men's minds and uh, so these German companies or German German people who moved here and then started companies are making our fighting men weak by, by getting them drunk. And that's that was a big push for uh, the banning of alcohol. Right. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, and, of course, there's all kinds of atrocities that take place at home, like we have the um, the Japanese internment where government just rounded up thousands of people. There's a good book called Snow Falling on Cedars, which um, kind of details one person's story from one perspective about that. But yeah, tens of thousands of Japanese Americans were just rounded up and thrown, you know, locked in prison until, until basically the war was over because they were afraid that, you know, they would do some sort of like domestic terrorism or whatever or send secrets overwards. Yeah, and that was all based on where they were from, right? Where they were born. And of course, it's kind of a fun thing to think about because there's this Trump travel ban on certain countries, right, that are primarily Muslim. And the right. left, of course, is all upset about this, claiming that it's a, a it's a it's a you know the human right to travel human rights violation because of their religion or whatever. Uh, when in fact it's six countries that um, we happen to have military conflict with uh, that have these bans, but some of the most populous Muslim countries, the highest percentage of Muslims, are not part of this ban. So it it really isn't um, the the key the key factor is not the religion. The key factor is where they're coming from, and that there are hostilities in those areas. And they'll decry Trump for for doing this, yet they revere FDR, who literally took people from their homes and put them into prison camps, into concentration camps, and he's their yep. hero. Yeah. You know, and that was because of their origin and and who they were. Uh, so it's just kind of a weird thing because it they're likening Trump to doing the thing that FDR actually did when Trump isn't really doing that. I mean, and when, again, we're no fans of Trump, right? Like, he does terrible shit. He's in charge of the, you know, most powerful and destructive force on the planet. Um, but, you know, credit... He's the credit. current head of the big mafia, right? Yeah. Yeah, but credit where credit is due, right? And and if you're going to be pissed off at Trump for doing what he's doing, then you can't then revere FDR or Abraham Lincoln because they did the same shit, if not worse. In fact, it was worse. It's, it's far worse, yeah. <laughs> but 
Yeah, it's, you know, the left, they get upset about how things are said, not actually what gets done. I mean, Trump could be just continuing the policies of, of Obama and he would get railed against. But Well, we, we, we saw that, you know, similar to how you have that great experiment of uh, economic systems where, where you can compare uh, countries of similar people and similar, like, history and ethic and, and whatever – uh, so you had North and South Korea, and you had East and West Germany, and you could see this great division in the productivity and, and all of these things, all these factors, and it was this great natural experiment. Well, similarly to what you just said, you can have Trump doing the exact policies that Obama was doing, and now Trump will catch shit for it. But if you go back and rewind the tape just a little bit more to go to what Bush was doing, and that's when the anti-war left was out in the streets protesting and uh, everything Trump or everything Bush did GWB uh, was terrible and horrific and he was the worst monster ever and he was you know a total moron uh, yet Obama gets into office wins a Nobel Peace Prize yet does the same or more than what Bush was doing he escalates drone strikes he escalates the number of countries that were involved in militarily and yet the anti-war left is gone they're they're mute they, they don't say anything about it. Uh, he claims that he's going to be standing up for whistleblowers who call out atrocities and, and uh, missteps by government. And yet he uh, went after Edward Snowden and he went after Julian Assange. He went after Chelsea Manning. Like all of these things, it, it, all that matters is whether there's D or an R at the end of their name. And then you get a totally different... Um, reading or perspective in the general populace and in the media. And it's really, really unfortunate. And so I, we're beating this horse to death, but, you know, I think it's a good no, point it's, to it's make. disgusting. It is, it is. It's absolutely disgusting. Uh, it seems like there's a whole lot of tribalism that goes on when you say you're part of a team, like I'm a Democrat, so, and I'm not bad, so I'm sure this Democrat in office is just Doing his best, doing the best he could. He's a good person. I mean, I had conversations with, you know, our dub, our good friend, Mr. Walker, and I asked him straight out, you know, what do you think of Obama? And, you know, I think he's a good guy. He's just doing the best he can. He's just, you know, it's just these Republicans that are, you know, won't let him get past what he wants to do and all this sort of thing. And it's like he asked me what I thought he was, and I thought he was a mass murderer. Well, he, of course, of course he's a mass murderer. What are you talking about? Of course, he's like the worst person in the world. I mean, if murder is bad and murder is wrong, here's a guy who's killed all kinds of people. Isn't that isn't that bad? No, he's got a he's got a, he's got a, he wears a blue tie, so it's fine. What? Did you, uh, if you can't criticize your own team, oh my god. Okay. Anyway, let's talk about this movie, Daniel. Yeah, let's um, round it to the movie. I've got uh, the Wikipedia up, and I could go through the uh, plot there if if that will be a good starting point for us. Yeah, I don't know how you want to do this one. I mean, it's really it's kind of a movie in two acts, although the last act is, I don't know, just a big fight. So um, you go ahead, and then I'll, I'll add in where I think you're missing. All right, and, and this will just basically be verbatim on the wiki, and I will put this down at the uh, show notes page, actualanarchy.com slash 24, the numbers 24, 24. So it reads as thus, as a young boy, Desmond Doss nearly kills his younger brother, Hal, 
This experience and his Seventh-day Adventist upbringing reinforced Desmond's belief in the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Years later, Das takes an injured man to the hospital and meets a nurse, uh, Dorothy, and uh, the two begin a relationship, and he tells her of his interest in medical work. At the outbreak of World War II, Das is motivated to enlist in the Army and intends to serve as a combat medic. His father, Tom, played by Hugo Weaving, a troubled World War I veteran, is deeply upset by the decision. Uh, before leaving for Fort Jackson, he asks the nurse if, if she'll marry him. She says yes. Um, Das is placed under the command of Sergeant Howell, played by Vince Vaughn, the, the excellent libertarian Vince Vaughn. Big fan of him. Um, Das excels physically, but becomes an outcast among his fellow soldiers for refusing to handle a rifle and train on Saturdays, uh, which is his Sabbath. Hal and Captain Glover, played by Sam Worthington, attempt to discharge Das for psychiatric reasons, but fail. They are subsequently uh, tormenting Das by putting him through grueling labor, uh, beatings and intending to get him to uh, leave on his own accord and he gets beat up by his fellow soldiers but refuses to identify them or even admit that he was beaten up. So I think that's enough to kind of get us started. There's there's a bit more but we can chew on this for a bit and then move on. Okay well let's go back to the beginning. Um, so like you said it starts off where Spider-Man is this little kid growing up in the Virginia mountains, and he's like kind of roughhousing with his brother in the front yard. And he takes like a rock and like brains the kid, and he's horrified. And the father, like Mr. Smith, Agent Smith, is like, well, I mean, which one should I whoop, I guess, because this is his parenting method. It's just like violence and attacking kids. Um, and Garfield he is like, well, I could take the whoopings and whatever. I mean, I hate this guy. But when he would beat our mother is when he really had an issue with it, and that's what kind of spurs his, and kind of left out of that Wikipedia article is it's actually when he goes to kill, or basically he has a gun, and he's, like, hitting his mother, and Garfield comes out of his room and grabs the gun, and he's about to shoot his father in the face, and the father says, go ahead, pull the trigger. And Garfield later on says, in my heart, I actually did. And that's when I swore and I made a promise to God that I wouldn't never pick up a gun, never touch a gun again. Which, he actually does touch a gun in the movie, but who cares. Um, so yeah, it does, it does the, the events of his childhood really do um, take hold and I wish you know for a Christian nation supposedly even though more and more people are not religious and I'm not religious but supposedly a lot of people on the right especially like to say that we're like a Christian nation formed on Christian values and we're not really but most of the founding fathers were non-religious or whatever but um, for a nation supposedly that has as high a christian population as we do it's it's funny how quickly people are like yeah murdering people you know is wrong or murdering some random guy is wrong but when a whole bunch of people get together and say that it's okay then all of a sudden it's okay yeah you just change the name of it you call it war instead of murder just like you call it taxation instead of theft you know you just change the name and all of a sudden the morality of it is reversed right it's Imagine. Good. There's a argument fallacy called argumentum ad populum, where 
you take a thing to be true just because a lot of people believe it to be true. And it's used by like atheists a lot when religious people like to point out that, you know, 95% of the world believes in some sort of an afterlife and some sort of a deity. Or 97% of climate scientists think that there's global warming or climate change, even though that's a very dubious <laughs> calculation. Right, or 90% of the world or 95% of the world believe or 98% of the world believe in, you know, government and states and that sort of thing and think that they're good things. But just because a lot of people believe in a thing doesn't make it true. Right, and, um, and uh, the Hugo Weaving character actually makes this uh, distinction when Spider-Man tells him he signs up for the war. He's like, well, if everyone's jumping off a cliff, you're going to do it too? Yeah, there's a, a strong scene because he's a, he's a yeah, former World War I vet where he saw the mistakes of his youth where he went, did something stupid and didn't realize what he was actually over there fighting for. But he saw all his friends butchered and murdered and didn't want the same for his children. And so he tried to instill in them, you know, whatever. I mean, he didn't do a great job parenting, obviously. He's uh, beating the shit out of him, whatever. But um, he does adamantly oppose. He doesn't, like, physically stop them. I mean, they're grown men that can choose what they want to do. But he does absolutely um, oppose them entering the war and tries to convince them to not do it. And there's a great scene where his his... Spider-Man's brother shows up wearing a uniform and Weaving like talks about how that's a really pretty uniform, you know, make sure you don't get shot you know, in the chest where, where uh, he's going to ruin that pretty uniform because that'd be a shame. So when you get murdered and get buried, well, you know, keep that uniform nice and clean. And just to point out for everyone, we're referring to Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man because he played Spider-Man in a few uh, movies, The Return of the Amazing Spider-Man or something like that. Like, this is after Tobey Maguire, right? So, yeah, if this is your first episode ever listening to, um, I like to refer to characters and actors by, like, their famous franchises. So I talk, I call Vince Vaughn, I call him Swingers, because I was like, even though he, that was a million years ago, but I still think of him as the Swingers guy sometimes. And his strongest work, I think. Yeah, he's still super great back in that movie. Um, and then... Hugo Weaving is either Agent Smith or um, his, like, Lord of the Rings character. I forget his name. Um, and, yeah, Andrew Garfield is in The Amazing Spider-Man, He's the, which is the defunct um, Sony reboot. But it's getting redone now with Spider-Man Homecoming, which is a different actor, Tom Holland. But anyway, yeah, so they're main franchises. Who cares? So where were we? Um, uh, we're saying yeah, so, uh, Vin, Vince Vaughn's a libertarian. <laughs> that's right. Um, but the brother, I mean, we're talking about really religious people who believe in thou shalt not kill. And like I was saying, that's right. That's what I was talking about. I was talking about how the majority of you know Christians in this country, if they would actually follow what they believe, supposedly, that would be great. Where, and it's shown in this movie where the brother is like the super religious Seventh-day Adventist. They're like, don't eat meat. They don't work on the Sabbath. They really are some strict Christians. And even he says, well... Quote, it's not killing in a war, even though the mother's like, what about, you know, God's commandment not to kill? And he's like, well, it's not killing in a war, clearly. A bunch of people say it's not, so it's not. Right, how very Stalin, right? Like, a single death is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic. Yeah, it just loses all meaning, right? I mean, it's just a number now. 
so if you're fooling even these Christians that are super have these supposed values, then just how powerful is the state? I mean, it seems like the state is more powerful than God, right? It sure seems that way. Uh, what are we talking about next, Daniel? Um, he's fallen in love with this lady, this nurse lady, and that was kind of cute. Um, at one point, he kisses her and she slaps him because she kind of surprised him and he didn't ask first, which I thought was kind of cute. Um, he didn't have permission. Uh, she wasn't voluntarily kissing him back. I, I didn't necessarily have a big issue with that scene, but did you have an issue with that scene? You know, I just took it as a different era. Uh, there was a certain decorum that was maybe more expected back then. I mean, and, and that might be swinging back. Like, it seems as if there there are laws on the books in certain states. I think California might be one where uh, a kiss could be considered a rape uh, if it's unwanted, even if the decision that it's unwanted happens weeks or months later. Right. Yeah. Um, let me quick jump back because um, a thought just occurred to me. Uh, it seems like all abusive people, like even if you listen to our um, Dazed and Confused episode, we talked, or at least I talked up about the idea of the abuser as the victim, where the cop was like, oh, now I have to arrest you, and now I have to be an asshole to you because if you're just hanging out in this place where you're, we don't think you should be hanging out in. Um, in this movie, Hugo Weaving um, is like, well, now I have to beat you now because of what you did. As if, well, now I'm forced to attack you because of what you did. So I'm the victim here, not you, as a result of, you know, my violence of attacking you. And it's this really twisted psychology where you're always the good guy in the story and you can't be seen as this evil villain attacking people. You actually have a good reason because this guy's making you do it. You don't want to do it, but you have to attack somebody. Right. It's like you're hitting someone. You're like, you're making me do this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, uh, one of our other episodes, we talked about how, um, the police will say, stop resisting, stop resisting. Even if you're not resisting, uh-huh. just to, you know, tell themselves or tell any bystanders that that you're the good guy. Yeah, absolutely. And you're just, you don't have a choice. You're just reacting to what this crazy person's doing. Yeah. It's uh, really twisted, but I understand the psychological aspects of it. You always want to be the good guy. So you always have some either ex post facto justification or on the spot justification for it or you know, previous. Um, but it's, it's really gross. And, uh, if human beings maybe didn't have that, then they wouldn't uh, be so much violence in the world. Yeah. Hey, so before we, we move on, and I don't want to belabor this point because it's very early in the movie, but when they are fighting in the front lawn as children and the father does say, well, you know, the, the wife's like, why don't you stop him? He's like, well, I'm going to wait for one of them to win so I can just, you know, whoop on the, the winner rather than whooping on them both. And, I mean, yeah, hitting your kids is not not cool, but, I mean, there's a certain respect for that. Like, let them sort it out, and then have the repercussions, you know, be on the other, uh, which I'm sort of okay with in a certain respect, right? Like, they should sort out their situation between the, themselves, and then if there is a punishment, then it should happen. Um, 
But then after uh, Desmond hits Hal with the brick and nearly kills him or could have killed him, um, that when my wife and I were watching this, like that made her jump because she was like, oh, my God, our kids might do something stupid like that because they don't know any better. You know, and just might be like they're messing around, wrestling, and, oh, there's this thing here, whack, without realizing the potential lethality of it. And uh, it, it struck me as well because, like, my kids wouldn't intend to cause that level of harm, but without uh, having, you know, developed an understanding and, and, and experience and knowledge about these types of issues, you know, they could do something like that without realizing it. And so that kind of stuck with us a little bit. So do you think that Weaving should have stepped in then? Well, he didn't know that the brick thing was going to happen. I mean, he did sure. step in when the brick thing happened, of course. And I knew it was going to happen because I watched the, uh, you know, making of, and so they show that scene where he, he hits him. Uh, but when you actually watch the movie, you can see the bricks in the yard when they start fighting. And so like a, I kind of spoiled it and I like, knew it was going to happen. Um, but you know, our yard in our, in our backyard, we've tried to make it as kid safe and friendly as possible. We've removed a fire pit and removed a bunch of other, uh, obstacles and issues, uh, but there's still a bunch of rocks back there. And so we're like, you know, half the time worried they're going to trip and fall on them. Uh, but now we're thinking, well, what if I pick one up and <laughs> bash the other one with it? I mean, the odds are low, but yeah, it's possible. Sure. Um, so you take that as a, a point to educate your children about? I yeah, mean, I think honestly, so. Honestly, there's, 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 you could, you know, there's all kinds of risks in the world, and a child could get hurt doing any number of things. But if you have this specific fear of this specific risk, you think is higher than slipping and falling in the bathtub or whatever, you probably want to mention it, don't you think? Yeah, and I think that will be one of the takeaways. Not only doing this show, but uh, telling our kids, like, hey, by the way, a heavy object might really, really harm somebody, so don't mess with that. That'll be another right. takeaway from this movie. Um, but this sort of segues into another topic I wanted to bring up, and that was, uh, so he hits his younger brother with a brick. He's, like, knocked out, and he's like, is he breathing? Is he breathing? You know, what did you do? Blah, blah, blah. And then he says, all right, boy, now I'm going to have to whip you. And then mom steps in and is like, no. You know, he obviously feels terrible about this. And uh, the Hugo Weaving character says, well, if you're going to, you know, mommify him or kiss his boo-boos, uh, then you're going to have a weak, a weak child or something like that. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing and a discussion point because I'm of the mind of, you know, Stefan Molyneux, as much as I disagree with many of the things he talks about these days, uh, he does have the whole peaceful parenting angle and I fully am on board with that. Like I think that if you're in a position of, you know, you're the provider and the, the, the um, relationship with your child and then they do something bad and then you physically assault them, like how are they going to take that? You know, what does that do to them mentally? Like you right. are so much bigger than them. You are meant in their mind, you are their caretaker. You are the, the one that provides for them and then, you're there hitting them, you know, it's got to really screw with them because children are very literal, you know, especially, right. you know, ages two, three, four, whatever. I mean, they don't and understand nuance, sarcasm. They're, what? 
Right. They also don't have the experience to understand what this is necessarily meant to do in the future. I remember being as a, punished as a child, like being locked in my room or whatever, and not understanding the why of it, you know? Like, why is this betrayal happening? What, what is this serving? What is this supposed to teach me? You know, that sort of thing. Right. And, and speaking of what it teaches you, it teaches you that using violence is the way to solve a problem, which plays right, right into the state's hands, right? Because that's sure. what they do. You know, if anything, abusing your kids, hitting your kids, and public schooling is all about getting your kid to conform to authority and that violence is the way that problems are solved. Right, and it's also the, the lowest. I mean, that's like the original solution to anything, right? I mean, it's like the caveman response of, I'm going to take a club and smack you in the head. It's, I mean, I think we've, we've learned a few things since then. I think we can do better than that. If that's, if that's your solution, then I don't think you have anything interesting to offer the conversation, honestly. <laughs> yeah, so enough on that. Let's, let's get back to the movie. Um, I think your question was oh, but, what I want to talk about next. And Oh, no, wait, 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 wait. Before we move on, um, you wanted to talk about, you know, is that kind of like wimpifying a man? Is it like making okay, him sure. less of a man by... I don't necessarily have a whole lot to talk about it, but that's an interesting point. Like, if, are you, if you're peaceful parenting a boy, are you doing him a disservice by making him more feminine? Is that, is that, is that the, the point of Hugo giving his character? And I think a lot of people have kind of said that in the past. Like, if you're going to coddle him and not whip him, then you're going to make him, like, less of a man. Like a, um, like a mama's boy? Like, uh, if we go back to the Star Trek beyond uh crawl was saying you know you, you grow through adversity and through struggle right and he has a point um if you are constantly having things done for you if you are insulated from all problem solving and adversity then sure you're gonna grow up some spoiled little child um but there's a difference between being coddled and having to solve problems and negotiate and learn about the world in a very real way and just being, have the shit beat out of you. I mean, I think we can do both, right? We can, we can not beat the shit out of people and teach them how to be responsible, complete human beings. Yeah. I think that uh, there's a distinction to be made there. Like you shouldn't violate the kid's trust in you and you shouldn't show them that violence is, is a solution to something because it's not. But you should also allow them to experience the consequences of their actions as a learning experience. So, like, one of the things, we have some neighbors down the street, and we don't agree with a lot of things that they do, but one of the things that we do kind of like is that they say to their kid, uh, if they're experiencing a problem or, or trying to figure something out, they're like, hey, solve it, figure it out. You know, like if they're having a an altercation with a friend, like, you know, because they're three years old, four years old, whatever, they get in a little fight about something. They're like, no, figure it out. Don't come crying to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not going to, like, punish you, but I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to solve your problem for you. You need to figure it out. Right. And I think that, yeah, absolutely prepares you better for the real world, so to speak, than going to your daddy and having your daddy fix it for you and then you're not learning anything about how to actually deal with the issue. Right. Yeah. Just daddy's going to fix it for me. I mean, that's like the, 
trope that's brought about, like, with the whole white privilege thing, right? Like, um, uh, a movie we're going to do at some point, um, Don't Breathe, uh, one of the key points that's brought up there is that uh, I'm going to ruin the whole movie, but basically the the character's upset because the daughter of a rich guy got got his daughter out of a criminal situation because he was a rich guy, a rich white guy. And I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, essentially, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a future episode, but the point is better to have your kid um, have to solve some things on their own and learn uh, consequences to their actions, you know, cause and effect and that all whole thing. So, you know, on the one hand, don't abuse them. On the other hand, don't do everything for them. Don't, don't let them always come to you uh, to solve every little problem because otherwise they're going to be useless. So to your question, you know, does not hitting them, turn them into that, you know, weak, whatever, no, I think it's it's the doing everything for them that that might do that, but uh, not hitting them, all that does is not psychologically destroy them. You know, right. like Steph talks about how uh, the prevalence of drug use and all these other issues are, you know, two, three, four times um, the amount of people who have not been abused as children, and it's because, or the theory is. The hypothesis is that these kids have have this um, portion of their psyche shattered, and so they're seeking uh, a feeling uh, of safety and warmth and comfort that they they didn't get from their parents, and so they're seeking it out through uh, drugs or other activities. And it's, it it makes a lot of sense when he presents it. He does do a lot of good work on that, and I would recommend some of his his older stuff. For the for that kind of content, for anybody listening, it's um, it, he makes a compelling argument in that sense, and it, it certainly, from my philosophy's point of view, it makes complete sense in that you want to reduce the amount of violence in the world, and violence is circular. So you get hit, you want to hit back, and it just perpetuates on down the road, and if if I think Steph's point was, you know, if you get to, if you raise a child peacefully and then they're exposed to the state and the violence of the system and all that, they would recoil in horror at, you know, even casual violence. Um, And if everybody did that, then they would recoil in horror at the state and then we wouldn't have the state. But as it is, everybody's like, well, we got the state. Oh, well, let's let's try and steer this ship in a kind of good way. And then it's just, like you said, violence doesn't solve problems, and that is what the violent state is. It is violence. It is institutionalized legal violence, and all it does by definition is cause problems. Uh, every government program that tries to solve a problem ends up making five more problems through solving it, and that's just on that level. Um, when you, Anytime you use violence to solve a problem in your personal life, you know it just creates more problems down the road. Um, and not to mention the fact that when you like go and kill a guy that does some harm to you, well, that person is a human being with friends and loved ones who are going to mourn his passing and it will affect their lives and creates problems for them. So by definition, when you use violence to solve a problem, it creates more. Yeah. And, and okay. the, only, 
the only problem that violence can solve is the problem of violence initiated against you. Like, self-defense is legitimate. So it's not, don't be, you know, this totally benign pacifist, right? If, if somebody's threatening your life, then yes, defend yourself, and that's totally legit. Yeah, and that's interesting because in the movie, um, I think he made the point that he was a complete pacifist and that if someone came at him with a gun, he, would, he wouldn't do anything to stop him. Yeah, Even but then the he, he protects somebody, yeah, like I think you're yeah, about to yeah. say, he tackles yeah. somebody, not defending yeah, himself, but defending another. Yeah, right. exactly. Right, so he's not consistent in that sense. Or at least he has ideals that he doesn't necessarily live up to. Um, so anyway, yeah, he absolutely does uh, fight with several Japanese soldiers throughout the movie, or at the end, towards the end of the movie. Um, not a lot. He's mostly doing, um, just dragging bodies out of this battle and trying to keep people alive. But, uh, and, and there's one thing to be, you know, I got this point that I wrote down in my notes that you, what you want more of in life, you know, you support, you put your support behind you, you vote with your dollars or you, you go to war and you try and save your friends because you want your friends in life and you want more friends. So you try and keep them alive. But by doing so, you're also inadvertently perhaps support the war effort, and there you're going to get more war. If all wars were just these horrific, horrific things where everybody was negatively affected horrifically, and maybe you know you wouldn't get a a war in that generation. Um, they called World War One the war to end all wars because it was just so horrific. But of course, you know it was successful for some people, so it just gets <laughs> war keeps on going. And for a bunch of other reasons. Okay. Um, let's get to where he basically shows up at boot camp. And as your Google Play description said, he was drafted, but he was absolutely not. I don't think, I don't think anybody was drafted in World War II. Like if, if there was, I, I'm totally ignorant of the fact. What did happen was right after Pearl Harbor, tens of thousands of men enlisted all over the place, and they had all kinds of troops to throw at battle after battle all over the planet. Um, so, yeah, he shows up to boot camp, and there's a scene where we find out that he's not going to touch a gun. They're at, like, the rifle range, and he says, Dawes says, well, I was told that I don't have to carry a weapon because of his conscientious objector status which is still kind of strange where you're kind of saying, well, these other people say, I don't have to carry a weapon. Whereas I would just say, I'm not touching that. I don't have to carry a weapon. And there's, if you make me, then you're just some thug that's going to force me to do it. But he's calling on this appeal to authority saying, well, hey, I was told that I don't have to do this. Where apparently the memo didn't get to everybody. Not everybody read that TPS report. And there's some drama in the boot camp um, where they claim that the Army doesn't make mistakes, and th that would be a mistake with you being a conscientious objector being assigned to a combat battalion, and uh, as opposed to, like, say, just a medical detachment or whatever. But um, that's what he wants to do, right? He wants to be a, a combat medic to serve his country, but uh, maintain his simplistic view of 
not touching a gun and not killing. But I'll support the killers. Right, and he'll support the killers who, in not uh, following their commands, they throw him in prison, right, on his right. wedding day. And yet he still wants to help these people. Yeah, he's, he's dealing with these people that will throw him in jail, throw him in a cage for not doing what someone tells you to do. So there's this kind of like sergeant or whatever. He comes in and gives him a, quote, direct order to pick up that rifle, and he won't do it. And so then the, the commanding officer is like, well, then you leave me no choice or whatever. You know, that's what they always say. And I'm, you're forcing me to imprison you. And um, so, yeah, he gets locked in jail on his wedding day. He doesn't show up to his wedding. And then there's a trial where it's basically a court-martial for um, disobeying a direct order or multiple direct orders, I think they say, or repeated direct orders. And he claims he's not guilty based on this idea that, you know, it's a law that if you're a conscientious objector, you don't have to participate in that respect. And um, there's like a, a more appeals to authority gag where this like General Westmoreland, I believe, like this high-ranking guy sends this letter and Hugo Weaving brings it in as like a favor to an old war buddy and gives it to the one of the judges apparently and he's like well this high-ranking guy says it's cool so let's call an end to this proceedings and you're free to go or whatever you're free to be a combat medic it's it's funny how in the military chain of command it's all just well, a guy with more stripes on his arm says this, so I've got to do this. It's all endless appeals to authority, and you can't use your own judgment. You're not you're not supposed to use your own judgment. You're supposed to just listen to orders and then do whatever orders say, regardless of whether they make sense or not. And uh, it may be efficient way to organize human beings to murder people, to get auto- automaton killing machines, but it has no respect for individuality. It's all this collectivistic you are all lemmings and chess pieces and I'm going to command you and sacrifice your lives for this other objective that I think is important, regardless of whether you think it's important. Indeed, sir. Uh, Shall we move on to uh, when he gets actually put into uh, theater of war? Sure. Um, I think I already mentioned that the uh, he goes undergo psych evaluation and the psych evaluation says, you know, we're dealing with like Satan himself and war is not murder. You know, this is like a it's just the the whole demonization of the enemy. Um, I don't know the numbers. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know that um, when you conscript people to join a war, um, most of them didn't fire their rifles, and there's like they've tracked rifle rates you know, firing rates over the years. And I think what is like in the Civil War, very few people actually fired their weapons. It was like maybe 50% or something or 25% or I don't know what it is. I have no idea what the numbers are, but I know they're low. And I know that over the indoctrination and as you demonize the enemy more and more, then those fire rates go up. Because as you see people as less than human, you're more likely to kill them. But if you see that person as a human being with friends and mothers and loved ones and as a real you know, person with self-ownership, 
then you're not going to necessarily pull that trigger because what do you have against that person? Like we said, we, what do you have against this guy? He just was born in a different country. That's all you know. Yeah, like they definitely demonized the Japanese in, in the war propaganda, and the posters and the films and, and all of those things. And they were doing that back in World War One, and, um, you know, all throughout history, yeah, the, the first goal is to make your opponent less than human, right, subhuman. And Orwell gets into this in 1984, where he says all the war propaganda, all the screaming and lies and hatred comes invariably from people who are not fighting. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Um, Now, did you think it was legitimate? The big concern by Swingers and by Avatar was that Dawes would weigh them down. He would be a liability on the battlefield. They say at one point a unit is no better than its weakest member and that Dawes would be the weakest member, the weak link, and that he may get somebody killed because he's not also shooting a gun. Do you think there's some legitimacy to that? Because I could see their point, kind of. If you're depending on the man next to you to do his job and this guy's not going to do it, He's just like an empty uniform. It turns out, of course, you know, he's doing his own job amazingly. But if a guy's not going to, you know, if it's a life and death situation and somebody's coming at you with a gun and he's not going to pull a trigger, then he could get you killed. Do you think that they were in any way justified in what they did to try and drum him out of the army when they found out that, you know, it's a combat medic and blah, blah, blah? You mean with assaulting him or giving him, like, terrible duty and things like that? Like trying to get him well, to quit? Well, obviously, I'm against the, the assault. But do you think they have a point by saying that you're a weak link and you might be a liability and you might get somebody killed? You know, I've never been a fan of this argument, like, we're only as strong as our weakest link. Uh, I don't think that that is necessarily true. Because uh, if you think about it, you know, if your weakest link would be the first one to break, then it would... I mean, that's, of course, assuming that it's like this connected structure. Uh, but let's say it's it's independent structures and there's a weak member and, you know, they're the first to, to be killed off. Well, then they're no longer the weakest link. They're gone, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible argument that, that fails on multiple levels because there's always a weak link. There's always somebody who's the weakest. So right. it's, it's not equality. There's no egalitarianism when it comes to this stuff. Right. All those soldiers were not equal. There's always going to be somebody who was the weak link. So, I mean, it might be somebody that didn't have the greatest eyesight or the best trigger control or whatever. Or the worst timing or luck. I mean, it's war. You know, like the the best guy might get shot first. Who knows? Yeah, and this movie does do a good job of showing just the chaos. I mean, I'm sure it's played up for Hollywood effect, right? So, but this this battle that is portrayed in the movie was very much a chaotic affair. It was not, it's not like the olden days of war where there's like regiments and regimented like, you know, lockstep soldiers and we're going to stand in this formation and we're going to shoot at you and whatever. It's very much people running around, finding cover where they could, you know, shooting where they could and just bombs and bullets flying everywhere. And yeah, it doesn't matter what your training is or how strong you are, or how smart you are. If you got caught by some random bullet, you're caught by a random bullet, and that's all she wrote. It's a wrap. 
so yeah, weak link argument fails on multiple levels. Um, but I, I could see their point of view in a sense. Not that I support their argument, but I could see where they're necessarily where they're coming from. Yeah, I think that they should have been more accepting of someone who's going to be a medic and not carrying a weapon. Because it's not like he was failing physicality. Like, he wasn't going to not be able to keep up and things of that nature. Uh, no, he, he was just, like the first. He won the uh, the obstacle course. So he was in prime condition. Right, even after getting kicked in the face by the one dude. Yeah. So uh, even though they keep talking about him being like a cornstalk, like Swingers calls him a cornstalk, private cornstalk, because he's has a really wimpy physique. But in the movie, he's like throwing guys on his back and running people all day long. He doesn't seem to have any kind of a problem uh, carrying people and being strong enough. Yeah, and I can't imagine, yeah, like, <laughs> I have to carry my four-year-old sometimes, and, you know, she's like 35 pounds or something, uh, but that's a lot of work. And this guy saves 75 people carrying them in similar fashion, you know? And these, yeah, and these are, like, Marine or, you know, Army soldiers that are, like, you know, got clothing and gear, and you're talking, like, you know, 200 pounds easy. Just slinging him over his back and running back and forth all day long. Yeah, it's uh, must have been more to him. Yeah, and I, I got to give props to the guy for what he did. I mean, I don't think he was necessarily consistent in his principles, though I like that they argue that he had principles and that they're important. Uh, I think that is something that most people don't have, you know, present company excluded, listeners. Uh, I hope if you listen to us that you do have some principles, or if, if you don't, that you will soon. Um, but, uh, you know, the guy did do some incredible stuff in very difficult circumstances. So Absolutely. And, I don't want to take um, that away from him at all. Like, he was very impressive in, in what he was accomplishing. Right, and he was the first, yeah, conscientious objector to win the Medal of Honor. I mean, that's no small feat. Um, but at one point in the movie, they complain the other people, like, as you say, he's living, trying to live up to his principles, you know, I would say that the majority of those people were probably Christians, but yet here they say that he was flaunting his morality at them by saying, oh, thou shalt not kill, so I'm not going to kill, so I'm not going to grab a gun. And I just wanted to make the point that this is what government does all the time. It's constantly forcing people to go against their own conscience. And so even though he had a simplistic take and his principles were rather short-sighted in my view, um, he absolutely stuck to his own conscience, and uh, for that, it's absolutely admirable. Yeah, you know, more, and, most don't. Yeah, and and I don't know if you intended to go this far with it, but I would argue that government and any in intervention they do in any aspect of anyone's life is an attempt to get them to s stray from what they would choose to do otherwise on a voluntary sure. basis. So, like, taxing them means that they can no longer choose to do with that portion of their money to satisfy uh, their wants and needs and desires. Um, everyone has a value scale where they take care of their most important needs first and then work their way down. Um, if you remove a portion of their capital, then they can only go so far down their scale versus otherwise. And anytime there's a law or regulation, you're preventing people from doing things they otherwise would have chosen to do um, now, of course, and I made this point with my wife on a walk today, of course, there are some, you know, no-brainer things. Like, you don't not murder people because there's a law. You don't murder people because murdering people is wrong. 
Like there is an objective morality in a certain respect where certain things are wrong whether there's a law or not, but you don't do them or follow that law because it's the law. You follow it because it's the right thing to do. Right, and you could bring up at this point, I'm not a big fan of Pendulette, but he is a libertarian, and you sent me a quote of his recently. You can might want to bring that up right at this point. Do you remember? I could I could tell it if you don't. Yeah, go ahead and tell it, and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes, actualanarchy.com slash 24. Oh, okay. So people sometimes complain that, well, without a state, people would just run around and rape and murder and without, you know, laws and that sort of thing. And that's kind of an argument that religious people use against atheists. Well, you just want to do all these terrible things. And Gillette goes, well, I actually do rape and murder exactly as much as I want, and that much is zero. I want to rape nobody, and I kill, want to kill nobody. And it's a kind of an indictment against the arguer that the only thing holding them back from doing these terrible things is somebody saying that they shouldn't do it. Yeah, that was our throw mama from the train, I think, uh, the Billy Crystal argument that I don't do it because I get caught. Yeah. Right, and we we had issue with that. We're like, no, you don't do it because it's the wrong thing to do. (laughs) Like, the the punishment isn't necessarily the, the only thing holding people back. Right, it's that argument that, yeah, with anarchy, it would just be chaos and whatever. It's like, no, there are social norms in place. There's all kinds of incentives to cooperate and not to just go out and slaughter and murder people. It seems to be a really disingenuous argument that these people make. They tell you, well, the state's stopping everybody from being at everybody's throats all the time, and that's why we need it. Well, no, either you... You're telling me that the only thing stopping you from murdering everybody is threat of punishment by some guy who's going to lock you in a cage? Well, even under anarchy, there would probably be some kind of punishment. But barring that, there's still a whole bunch of reasons to not rape and murder and all those things. Because who wants to hang out with a rapist and a murderer? And who wants to do business with a rapist and a murderer? And who would be happy with their child being a rapist and a murderer? And who would be happy with their husband or wife being a rapist and a murderer? Or their child being a rapist in America. There's so much societal pressure, and I would argue that there's all a whole bunch of rape and murder because families break down, because drugs and alcohol, because of violence, because of government, like we talked about in the Dates and Confused episode, and how you just talked about with the the peaceful parenting. Um, government is a poisoner, and we don't know all the far-reaching effects that its tendrils reach out into. And it's it's like that ripple butterfly effect. You know, you you try and solve a problem with violence and, you know, two weeks later uh, a building explodes or whatever. You just, it's this poisonous thing that happens to everybody. I mean, we're all poisoned. We all are by this horrific thing. And without it, you don't know what the world would look like and how much more peaceful and how much less murder and rape there would be if everybody was treated with respect and wasn't locked in a cage for having a plant or any number of things. I mean, if you've ever watched, like, um, like Making a Murder, I haven't seen it, but there are a number of shows where, you know, a kid will get caught with a plant and due to some mandatory minimum sentencing or whatever, some angry judge, somebody else's judgment, you get locked in a cage and what do you do in prison? You get hanged out with a bunch of rapists and murderers and hardcore criminals. It's, 
I mean, they, they call prisons crime schools because that's what they are. So you go to prison, crime school, and you come out a hardcore criminal. Surprise, surprise. Um, the recidivism rate is ridiculous because prisons are not reform places. They are crime schools. Uh, so uh, when you solve problems with violence, it creates more violence. It's a circle, and its effects are far-reaching. And, um, yeah, we're just, we're just all poisoned. Yeah, and that that reminds me of uh, our Breakfast Club discussion because I think our guest Drake was bringing up the idea that um, prisons and schools there's there's very little uh, really difference between them and uh, like you said you know at, in prison they're going to learn from other criminals how to be even better criminals and um, that uh, uh, school is, is another situation where People are forced to be somewhere they don't want to be, and they're interacting with people who also don't want to be there, and so that's maybe a contributing factor to why you see school shootings and things of that nature um, because of that kind of top-down control and the authoritarianism. Yeah, it's hard to know. It's impossible to know. I mean, it's so, so many moving parts, right? It's just an infinite number of variables, but we do know that government is toxic and it's a cancer and we've got to cut it out. <laughs> so uh, we, we've been going for a fair number of, number of minutes here. So I think we need to get back to the movie a little bit. Um, I'm going to go read through the next couple of portions of the wiki, if that's okay with you. And then we can start doing some more discussion. No, it's not okay. Yes, of course. Though. All right. So after the, um, the basic training where, he gets court-martialed on his wedding day and, and all those things, and then he gets exonerated, and then he does marry his, his wife, Dorothy. Uh, he ends up getting deployed to the Pacific Theater with the 77th Infantry Division um, in the Battle of Okinawa. And Doss's unit is informed that they are to relieve the 96th Inf- Infantry Division, which was tasked with ascending and securing the Maeda Escarpment, which was nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge, in the initial fight, both sides sustained heavy losses. Uh, Doss successfully saved several soldiers, including those with um, severe injuries. The Americans stay the night on the escarpment, um, and Doss stays in a foxhole with one of his bunkmates, Smitty, a squadmate who was the first one to call him a coward. Doss reveals that his aversion to holding firearms stems not only from his religious beliefs, but also from nearly killing his drunken father, which uh, you had mentioned before, uh, who had threatened his mother with a gun. Smitty apologizes for doubting his courage, and the two make amends. The next morning, the Japanese launch a massive counterattack, driving the Americans off the escarpment, and Smitty is killed. And let's uh, start discussing from that point. Um, and I just want to bring up that, that when they show the faces of the 96th Infantry Division leaving as uh, Doss's division is, is coming in to relieve them, that was the most telling moment for me because you could see that, you know, 100-yard stare, the vacant look in their eyes, the totally beaten down emotionally uh, character of each of the surviving members of that division as they were driving through. And that was the most hard-hitting thing for me in the movie, even though there was a whole bunch of gore and a whole bunch of violence and destruction. Um, but it was the the looks on those guys' faces. Yeah, just complete defeat. Um, there's an 
a scene also like that. And I'm sure it happened a bunch of times in war when you're relieving a division and one division's repeat, you know, reinforcing another, taking over. Um, there's a scene in uh, Band of Brothers where that happens too when they're going into Bastogne, uh, first, first Airborne, I think they're called 101st Airborne, is relieving, I forget who. But yeah, they're just, they're actually walking, you know, single file, um, you know, like you're like high-fiving after a softball game, walking right next, you know, along as the other guys are going the other direction, and you're just seeing the, the looks of horror and dejection and, and absolute misery um, as you're going to this place where they just were, and that's got to be absolutely horrifying. Um, so at this point, maybe we should talk about whether you think this is a, a pro or a um, anti-war movie. Because this is like one of the, the few times, I mean, there's, like you said, there's all this violence and chaos and horror and blood and guts in the, in the battle. But, yeah, the really, is like the only real anti-war aspects would be like the scene you just described. And then the few times, well, it's repeatedly said throughout the movie that, you know, killing is wrong, thou shalt not kill. But it's also said in the movie that, you know, it's not killing in a war. So for you, was this movie at all, and I know the answer, but for the listeners, um, was this movie, you know, fair and balanced? Or was it a pro-war movie? Was it an anti-war movie? Where, what do you think? Well, I hope I can remember how to say what I had said to you before we started recording. But uh, a lot of the critics said that this was a very strong anti-war film, but I tend to disagree and like you said there are some moments where you do see the horrors of war you see the violence and the destruction you see the emotional damage you see uh, even his father experiencing PTSD and having all sorts of issues as a result of his involvement in the war and those are some anti-war themes but in general the whole point of the movie is to show the heroic effort that this guy uh, Andrew or Desmond Doss, played by Andrew Garfield, uh, did all these things during the war. So I think overall it's it's supporting the whole concept of the war. It was the the last good war, the last just war, as they would say. Um, though there's a talk that I'll uh, put down below uh, where uh, Rothbard talks about the two just wars, which were defensive wars or wars of wanting to leave a political union, and that was, of course, the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution, and the War of Secession, or War of Northern Aggression, uh, more commonly known as the Civil War. Right. But yeah, I think yeah, that the, does glorify the whole concept of going to war that, that they were doing good things or, or doing they were benevolent in their actions and uh so the critics saying this is an anti-war film i think maybe we're keying on some themes that are there but i don't think that the overall preponderance is that it is an anti-war film yeah i would tend to agree with you um there are some themes that kind of anti-war-ish but at the end he absolutely has to sign up and I can't do otherwise and the people that didn't get to fight hanged themselves and just how noble and wonderful it is to play on that basic human emotion like that's another thing that gets lobbed at us anarchists right that well if, if, if there was no laws you would just sit back and do nothing right I mean you wouldn't 
take offense if I was murdered or if your friends are killed or if there's a murderer running around. Well, no, people, people leap to defend others. People, if you think it's a just cause and there's a reason for it, people throw their lives to defend others or defend people that they care about. It's, it's a joke that um, we would just all sit on our hands as like some murderer was running around the neighborhood. No. <laughs> yeah, we, that's fine. Go ahead. Let's just sit back and get some popcorn and watch people get murdered. That's, that's what I'm all about. I love it. I'm, I'm super keen on no, I'd have an, an, an invested interest in stopping this guy from murdering my friends and loved ones and even people I don't know because of the injustice of it all. Uh, we're all outraged at injustice and murder. That doesn't go away when you take away a violent gang of thugs that are ruling over everybody. Basic human desires and emotions and feels happen. Um, it's like the argument that, oh, I would be an anarchist, and I've heard this argument. I don't, I, this is secondhand, but I've heard this argument. I'd be an anarchist, but, you know, I really, you know, demand, you know, like the, 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 um, the FDA and, um, like, I really demand food safety. As if there's one thing that people won't put up with is, is, is unsafe food. I mean, we, we absolutely demand safe food. We, we throw a fit when, when uh, there's any kind of, uh, um, uh, any kind of a hazard, like companies will recall millions of dollars in in uh, produce and products out of the fear that there might be some contamination in them because people demand safe food. It's a re- yeah. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when there's a there's a people out of you know fear of like you know bad press, like companies don't want their products to kill people. You don't want to kill your customers. One. This is where people are so afraid of like the tyranny of corporations and companies. Well, those are voluntary things. If if company is doing something terrible, you don't support it. You stop buying their products. So companies right, but, will but, recall vast amounts of product to avoid that potential. But thing but happening. then they, they they not only support but advocate for the monopoly uh, of a company over the government. You know, right? Like like you change the word company to government, and all of a sudden everything's fine. All of a sudden, monopolies are good. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. It's a it's a mind trick. It's a Jedi mind trick, and it's really effective. Yeah, because is effective. A government's going to run on a bureaucratic and political system versus a company that's going to operate primarily on a market system. I mean, of course, if there's collusion with government, they're going to get protection and licensure and and permits and other uh, issues to stifle competition. But they are at least seeking on some level, to provide a, a good or a service to a consumer that's going to satisfy their needs and wants and desires. Whereas with government, it's more along the lines of, well, you vote for us every couple of years, but other than that, we get to do whatever the fuck we want, and we will uh, make promises during the campaign, but we will immediately break them right after. Right. And, yeah, all the incentives are to grow government. All the incentives are... You know, you're making laws, and you got to have people to enforce those laws. And there are constantly you need more of a budget, and you're failing forward, and all those reasons, all those good reasons. Um, do we have a whole lot? You know, the rest of my notes for this movie are Avatar leads the men in, stepping over bodies, shooting starts, lots of dead, 
some Rambo action. Dawes saves Smitty by jumping on a Japanese soldier. Saves the guy with no legs. He saves Lieutenant Dan. Uh, smoke for cover. Satchel charge blows bunker. Hand-to-hand fighting. Rats are eating the dead. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like play blow by blow. There's not a whole lot to uh, mention except for um, at the very end of the movie. And I'm sure I'm, I don't want to like step on anything you want, any issues you want to talk about. But at the very end of the movie, uh, Avatar, played by Sam Worthington, he's like this captain and or colonel, I don't know, whatever. And after they've realized that Dawes has been saving all these people. And he's like this big hero. And he's gone from zero to hero, right? He's like the goat. And now he's the greatest of all time. And now and he is the goat. He goes from the goat, goat to being the goat, yeah. Exactly. And he gives them this, this speech where he goes, he's, I don't know, it's like a pep talk or whatever. It seemed like a very movie speech that definitely didn't happen. But he goes, these men, you know, we got to go back up to Hacksaw tomorrow. And these men, you're so inspiring, you know, they're not going to go up without you. And I know you've been through a lot, but we need you up there. And it's like, really? They're they're not going to go up without you? No, they're going to go up as soon as you order them to go up, because that's what they do. When you threaten people with an order, that's what they do. So, yeah, that that was kind of ridiculous. But um, then we they go up and there's this glorious murder montage of all this violence and whatnot, and there maybe there's some more to talk about with the um, the Japanese. They had a very much you know Japanese culture is very different. They're very much all about like honor and duty and and um, if you're defeated in battle, it's very shameful. So the Japanese even up into World War II and back in the samurai days they did it. But, um, and all throughout, but if you're like a defeated general, like you lost a battle or if you lost like whatever, you're about to die and whatever, you would commit seppuku, which is like Harry Carey, which is like you would kill yourself and you'd have like a, someone help you by cutting off your head. And that's very much a cultural thing. I mean, you're not going to see some American general doing that, but the, the shame of like failure or the shame of losing I'm not exactly sure so I don't really want to like talk about it like I'm an expert on the the cultural reasons behind it all but it's very much tied to duty and honor and for me duty and honor is saying that you have positive obligations and um, I don't believe in positive obligations um, other than doing what you say you're going to do like contracts and but which are you can still back out of them it's voluntary, of course, but um, it's an interesting kind of cultural thing, and I'm not sure how much government perpetuated that versus how much like organically that came up. Um, I want to say it's probably probably started politically, where it's a huge shame to to you know uh, fail. But that's another thing, um, another argument for anarchism, because they're very much motivated by not shaming, not bringing shame upon the family or shame upon your name or shame upon the people that know you or shame upon yourself. Well, that's another reason to not murder and rape and whatever, not steal and stuff. Uh, You don't want to bring shame upon you or your family or your others because your actions reflect on theirs. Uh, It's it's another social norm 
that brings about peace and stability. And it's another reason why we wouldn't be in the back of a pickup truck with a machine gun. Yeah, yeah well said. That was a, a good amount of stuff that covered a lot of things, and uh, I'm not sure exactly where to pick up. But yeah, Wherever uh, you want. Uh, he is a captain. It's Captain Glover, played by Sam Worthington, where he does tell him that the men are inspired by his efforts for bringing down 75 injured men uh, all by himself, repelling them down uh, a 400-foot cliff face, which i got to ask, why were the Japanese not cutting that uh, rope yeah. bridge down? No shit. Like no every shit. day. Like every day. Every time, the yeah, as soon as you got the Americans to retreat, you go up and you cut down that damn rope ladder. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? That's the stupidest thing. It seems to be a movie thing where, well, we only have one of these rope ladders. So let's just not show them cutting it up or something. I don't know. Yeah, because, I mean, it would have been like, uh, they went up the ridge, you repel them, you cut the thing down, and they don't come back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how else are you going to – I mean, imagine the work going into uh, putting that up there. You have to have, like, two guys climb up freehand, you know, like normal mountain climber style, and then set up, like, a pulley system, and then, like, have a bunch of guys down at the bottom, pulley rope, pull the ladder up, and all that takes time, and you're exposed to enemy fire, so all you got to have is, like, five Japanese guys at the edge of the cliff just, like, shooting people as they climb up. I mean, it would take very, very little effort to uh, defend that ridgeline as opposed to waiting until they all get up and then defending. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, so that was weird. Um, but, you know, there is uh, – well, the other point to that whole thing with the captain talking to him was that it was Das's Sabbath day that they were going to go and uh, do this assault. And his argument is, well, the, you know, the, the enemy is not going to wait until uh, we're ready for them. You know, so they're not going to respect your religious day. I think that was one of the things they said back at the base. Like, oh, well, right. they, just, they just won't attack on Saturday. <laughs> or whatever. We'll just, yeah, we'll just ask the Japanese not to attack on Saturday. I'm sure they'll they'll be fine with that. Right. Uh, so I mean, and they make a big deal out of that. And of course, I mean, that is a big issue with with this character, with with this person in real life. That the religious aspect was there, um, but they they make him overcoming that be a big component of their story here. Uh, but another thing I wanted to bring up was that when Doss was saving these guys, uh, you know, you could hear them in, in the distance call, calling for help. Uh, meanwhile, the Japanese, they were shown as being this totally evil um, people going out and finishing off injured people, injured Americans. Right, and, but that's a standard, I mean, that would be a standard thing to do by any army. Is but it we, though? Yeah, isn't not, that considered a war crime? No, I mean, well, the in the movie, like the Americans went off and stabbed, you know, the wounded Japanese guy that Doss was trying to save, but just not on the scale. I mean, if 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 the positions had been reversed, oh, I guarantee you, the American soldiers would have been doing the exact same thing. Yeah, didn't they do it's that almost, in, Band, in Band of Brothers or or maybe another World War II like European theater movie? Where Probably, like in Red they, Line or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they took all these German soldiers and then 
all of a sudden they don't have any German soldiers. In oh yeah, that was in uh, yeah Band of Brothers on after their uh, on like one of the first combat days after D Day. Yeah, their um, private spears or corporal spears or whoever his uh, rank is. Um, there's a story going that they've got some German workers and he walks up to them and hands them all a cigarette and then he pulls out his machine gun and mows them all down. So yeah, I mean, there's throughout history there's always been you know whether they they only took prisoners in as much as it was convenient for them. Um, you know, uh, American soldiers were taken captive when, like, an entire regiment would, you know, surrender. And then, you know, you'd be stuck in some kind of a POW camp where the conditions are just absolutely horrible. And you're also dependent upon the amount of food that the Germans have left to feed, you know, you as a prisoner, even though there's, like, you know, basic humanity and conventions of war or what have you. But um, you're talking about a losing power, right? You're talking about the Germans who are losing the war, and they're going to feed themselves first. So how much food they have left over to feed you is <laughs> not great. So um, I, I don't know how much is straight up you know, torture versus just, hey, we don't have the food. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know if, I mean, you saw that as a very like evil thing. I would agree with you. I mean, you're going around stabbing and murdering people, of course. But from a tactical perspective, I think that was something that all armies do all the time. Well, I think from a storytelling perspective, it was a device to make the enemy multi like the ultimate evil. Whereas, even though the Americans did the same thing to the Japanese soldiers that Das repelled down, they sort of do that off camera. They're just sort of right. like, oh, they didn't make it. Whereas they're showing the Japanese soldiers going around stabbing, killing, murdering, helpless, um, defenseless people. I mean, granted, some of them, you know, do shoot back and kill some of the Japanese soldiers. But I, I just feel like if, you know, in the media, they say equal time to like both sides of, uh, of an issue, which of course is totally bizarre and, and nonsensical. Uh, but the amount of screen time given to the Japanese murdering injured people versus Americans killing injured people is so disproportionate. Even though, even though the whole entire thing that's happening is the Americans are assaulting and the Germans or the Japanese are defending, right? This is taking place on Okinawa, Japanese homeland. <laughs> what, what are you doing there, Americans? But you are attacking, right? You are initiating the violence. Fair but yeah, you're right. Um, it does happen off off screen, the Americans killing the whatevers. Um, but in the defense of the filmmaker, Melis Gibsonius or whatever his name is, um, for a dramatic scene, it worked pretty well because you've got Doss running around without a gun and he's kind of like trying to sneak away these injured men under a threat of uh, these Japanese rovers. Now, it should be said that um, Avatar wanted to stop. What's, what's allowing, what's allowing Doss to just kind of unfetteredly run around the battlefield and grabbing these injured soldiers is the naval artillery bombardment that's just offshore and they're just shelling the shit out of this area. 
And Doc, not only is he running around in like enemy territory, he's also could have been blown up by his own friendly fire, right? Right. And how many of but their that, own people did they kill doing this, right? Like right. Dawes happened to not get hit by this, but I mean, there were people all over the place that he could have right. saved that got shelled. Absolutely. So, but so then uh, Worthing calls off that bombardment. And so then Dawes, so that allows the Japanese to go out into the battlefield and then finish off um, the American soldiers. Um, but then that creates a dramatic tension for Dawes. Now he has, you know, the Germans to, or the Japanese to contend with, where before he didn't, he just had the bombs to contend with. So from a dramatic standpoint, it works for me because it creates tension for the Dawes character running around. Um, and having to avoid the uh, Japanese patrols, essentially. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see your point on, you know, basically showing the Japanese as like this evil force, and I would agree. Um, it's just like the, the, the U.S. media ignores all the raping and the killing that the U.S. soldiers do. I mean, ra- soldiers have raped and killed and done horrible things you know, when, when, when you read in the Bible or in any history book about how some army raised a city, that's setting fire to everything, raping whoever you want, and killing whoever you want, and then stealing everything that's not nailed down that you can carry. I mean, that's, it's a horrific thing. And then you're talking about, you know, God, you know, sends so-and-so to raise, you know, so-and-so city, and it's like, oh, my shit. Oh, okay. yeah, that's, that's the whole uh, Sherman's March to the Sea, right? I mean, that right there tells you that it wasn't about slavery. That was about total destruction of entire cities and towns and, and families and people. And you know, yeah, they call the they call it after the war was Reconstruction, right? Because right. literally what they had to do was build because <laughs> everything was burned to the ground and destroyed and murdered. Right, I mean, the South was defending their very lives, and, uh, you know, Lincoln used, used slavery as a tool, but it wasn't the reason that he he went to war. And we talk about this in our episode on Lincoln, uh, where we had a discussion with Rex Gazer, who's the Air Force uh, medic, and uh, we put a bunch of uh, Thomas D. Lorenzo books and lectures in the show notes for that one. I think that was what um, episode number seven, I want to say six or seven, something like that. So if anyone wants to hear more about that, feel free to check that out. Actually, anarchy.com slash six, I think. Nope. It is seven. Actually, anarchy.com slash seven, the number seven. Yeah. He's a monster. Uh, Lincoln who claimed to be against slavery, really more of a unionist. Um, and he actually used slavery to supposedly abolish slavery by by uh, enlisting and you know drafting all these people to force them to fight in this war and uh absolutely uh draft is slavery it's not it's not gone uh, just because it's not necessarily the law right now or not in place or in practice right now um laws change at the whim of politicians and politicians are crooks and liars and thieves and so i don't and I'm sure the draft will be instituted again at some point in the future. And it's absolutely slavery. And I hope and people will point that out when it happens again. The next time politician floats the idea of draft, 
that it's absolutely slavery. And well, this whole e- <laughs> this whole equality thing, <laughs> this whole equality thing, like people uh, now want to have women be able to be drafted. And I did. We may have talked about this before, but there was some months ago an article saying that. Um, a libertarian perspective might be in support of this simply because uh, if there was a draft and women were subjected to it, then there would be that many more people affected and thus resisting it versus just men being eligible to be drafted. Right. And so that's sort of a argument from a fact. Um, it's certainly not a principled argument. It's, it's more of a speculative, like, well, if that happened, then maybe this other thing might happen. Um, but I, I think it has a certain interest of discussion, at least. Sure. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it's, it's something might maybe happen in the future. Not the most compelling argument, especially when you're talking about a violation of principle. But uh, I'll take what I can get, I suppose. <laughs> so there is one last thing I wanted to talk about on this movie that might be a discussion point, and then we can wrap this up. And that is towards the end of the the battle, um, the Japanese feign surrender. So they they got the white flag up. They're wearing tidy whities They come out of their cave. Their hands are up. They draw in the American soldiers and then you know throw grenades at them and try to kill as many as they can. Um, just from a from an ANCAP perspective, I mean, obviously the whole war is of course an abomination, but what do you think of this tactic of sort of showing one hand, like you're offering surrender, and then, of course, betraying that? Well, I think you're, you know, like I've said many times, you've all, you're dealing with people who are willing to use violence against you, so you can't trust them when they say the thing either. It's like trusting a, a guy with a gun to your head. I, I'm sorry, but I have no reason to believe you're being honest with me. Yeah, this is back um, to the R.W. argument, right, where he says, well, you should try to reason with the guy with the gun to your head. Right. It's like, well, yeah, I, he's probably going to lie, too. <laughs> you don't definitely think of thieves and murderers and crooks as the most honest of people. Um, yeah, uh, so, I mean, the Japanese were very dedicated. I mean, I think at one point in the movie they talk about them as being animals because they don't care if they live or die. And they were very, you know, that was very much exhibited by the Japanese in the war, right? Yeah, the shame was so powerful. Yeah, the kamikazes or just the whole act of killing yourself or taking out as many with you as you possibly can, just like, you know, giving your life in, you know, some glorious honor type situation. And the Americans did it too, just not to the same level. I mean, the whole act of going to war is a sacrificial act. I mean, you you don't want to. You'd rather be doing something else. You'd rather be having sex with your girlfriend or, you know, going fishing or hunting or hanging out, having good times, eating a sandwich. You don't want to be doing this. This is an absolute sacrifice. You know, unless but, you got yep. duped, duped into the whole thing and you think you're doing the right thing. Right, right. So, yeah, somewhere I'm sure we're very gung-ho, and that's where the term, I guess, comes from. But um, Yeah, not to, not to derail you. <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. Um the very some were very much wanted to be there because they were duped, I, I believe, but they believed that they had good reasons to be there. But in general, for the most, especially for those that are drafted, chances are you don't want to be there, um, and so that it's very much a sacrifice to risk your life 
to, and that's all you know, all you have, all you can give, the most valuable thing. Um, and now I am losing my train of thought. Uh, but yeah, so the Japanese, when they would kamikaze or suicide themselves, and it's just a, a slightly more of a level, I suppose. I mean, they even make a point in the movie that, you know, the real heroes are buried over there, like the ones who gave their lives. So they're the true heroes, the ones that actually, you know, gave all they had. But everybody gives some of what they have. Nobody comes back from more the same person they left. Um, most people are traumatized. They have PTSD. They've done horrible things. They've seen horrible things. Everybody is changed by it you see horrors that you never thought you would see. And I'm not talking from experience. I'm just talking from what people have said. But, um, yeah, I, I think it'd be silly to say, unbelievable, these Japanese, they said they were going to surrender, and then they didn't. Those sneaky devils. Can you believe it? I think it's absolutely par for the course, and I think it's a perfect strategy. If you intend to kill yourself and you hate your enemy so much, and I'm taking you with me. Sorry. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, in modern times, you know, it's the suicide bombers. Um, I guess that would be the uh, terrorists and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, they weaponized the surrender, right? They kamikazed, they drew people in, and then took out as many as they could. Yeah, I mean, it's a dick move, no doubt. <laughs> dick yeah, move, dick, but total dick move. But all of war is a dick move, so it's, it's just par for the course. Um, you can't expect them to all of a sudden be honest and honorable at the end when you're dealing with someone that, you know, thinks you're the devil. And they, they did a good job demonizing, you know, Americans too. So, I mean, like the Japanese, they're so dedicated. I mean, I think this is quite famous, but I'll repeat it here is that they were, you know, they were Japanese people like 20 and 30 years later living in the, you know, living in the, uh, just some island just not knowing that the war was over or not believing it was over or not believing that, you know, Japan had lost or whatever. Just continuing on the fight. <laughs> you know, all you know, you're super dedicated. Well, that was part of the premise of uh, Kong, Skull Island, right? Uh, which was our episode 13, actually, anarchy.com slash 13. Wasn't uh, the John C. Riley character, uh, a downed fighter pilot, and uh, his former enemy who became his friend was a World War II pilot and they were trapped on the island together? Yep, yep. And then they got shot down at the very beginning and they became friends and then, yeah, Riley didn't know that the war had ended and he had no way off the island himself, but yeah. Yeah, yeah that was it. Look at us referencing all of our prior work. We're so good. Yeah, we, so we've good. done things. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap this this one up. Um, we we barely even talked about Doss bringing down all these uh, guys and how he did it. But I mean, watch the movie; it is it is a good movie. Uh, and Mel Gibson does a great job directing, and I think Andrew Garfield, Vince Vaughn, and all the other characters are played very well. Um, but the the most amazing thing to me is that this guy goes in and saves all these people, which. The bizarre thing is they're all running into this meat grinder, and then he picks up some pieces and, and puts them down this hill, um, only so that they can go and do it again. It's kind of bizarre. But um, the fact that he survived this whole thing and went on to live a, a long life, he died at the age of 87, uh, he got uh, awarded the Medal of Honor by Harry Truman, um, 
you know, and then lived out his days. Uh, so, you know, the fact that he, he made it through all this is kind of an amazing, an amazing feat. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people survived the, the, the war, but a lot more, I'm not, I mean, I don't, I don't know the ratio. I, I forget if the U.S. had like a million troops or 500,000, or I forget how many hundreds of thousands that we put into battle, but then like around 50,000 died. So your odds are like what, like one in six, maybe one in eight to didn't make it back. But um, he did absolutely, I mean, 75 people in like two days. It's crazy. 75 people. If he, I don't know if, if the movie was shot at the same place that the actual battle took place, you know, if that was the, the same. I assume that they probably did some scouting or tried to get some kind of close to what it actually looked like or whatever. But if, if those proportions are correct and he was actually lowering the people down that far, and it's a tremendous amount of effort to go through it for 75 different times to go drag under threat of enemy fire and your own bombs and to, you know, just drag person after person after person after person 75 times all night long. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing that um, he did that. All right, so two points. Number one, this movie, they all had magic guns that never ran out of bullets because I did not once see them reload anything. Uh, he also seemed to have unlimited morphine. Because right. he would go around to all these guys like, oh, here's some morphine, buddy. Here's some morphine. Stay with me. Stay with me. I got you. <laughs> um, that was his line, yeah. Although, to be fair, I mean, we're talking about the first day of battle, the first, very first battle coming in with fresh supplies and whatnot. You... And if you watch, like, uh, Band of Brothers, you know, they start running low on, like, day, like, 52, you know, or day, like, 100, something like that, you know, when they're just scrounging for anything, trying to get any kind of supplies. So I give them a kind of a pass on that, although the reloading thing did it did kind of bother me. You never see anybody. Like, Vince Vaughn has this, like, submachine gun that if you pull the trigger on one of those submachine guns, they hold, like, like 32 rounds. Uh, you pull that trigger for more than about four or five seconds and that, that clip is empty <laughs> and he's just shooting it the whole the whole battle never once see a reload it is fairly ridiculous and then the other everybody else is holding like the m1 garand rifle which i believe it has like a six or seven round magazine and yeah you never you never see them uh reloading those either so it is fairly ridiculous although i understand from a movie perspective you don't want to kind of like take a pause and show them reloading. But it's actually, I think it increases the tension if you show them reloading because you're hurriedly trying to reload so you can get back to shooting so you might not get killed. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and then there's one other thing that I'll mention, and I know this is towards the end of the episode, so uh, if you have made it this far and not seen this movie yet but intend to watch this movie, I implore you, do not watch the behind-the-scenes uh, before watching the movie. I made that mistake. And so many of the scenes in the movie were ruined for me, not only in that I saw portions of them prior, like the brick on his brother's head, but also I saw where they, um, I saw where they shot the uh, battle scenes and that it was just a very small area in which they um, placed cameras and they had a berm so you couldn't see the idyllic uh, Australian landscape beyond. Um, so I think that had I seen the movie first and then watched the behind the scenes, I would have felt 
that the battle was a larger space, but because I knew it was a confined, like, like roughly a football field size. Oh, really? Wow. They did a good job making it seem larger. Right. But because I knew it was smaller, I saw it as smaller and it kind of ruined it for me. Mm, Yeah. You should not have done that. Yeah. Because there's always this berm like in the uh, near horizon and that was the end of the entire field. Uh, No, they did a good job. I mean, with all the, just the, the, you know, the smoke and the haze of battle and whatnot, it, it seemed like it was fine or they would like kind of blur out the background or whatever kind of do some depth of field stuff, but um, it, it's definitely, I didn't know that, so I'm glad I saw it before you said that, because it definitely, he did a good job. I'm surprised they settled on an area that small in the first place. I mean, a generally a Hollywood movie, it had like a budget of like a hundred and, I don't know, I don't know how many millions of dollars they had budget, but, you know, you do a fair amount of scouting, and I'm sure they, they looked for, you know, a place with like the cliff that they wanted. But you could also shoot those in two different places. You could have the cliff scene shot in one spot and then have the battle scene shot in some other spot um, and just have, like, a bigger area. But it definitely gave the impression of a, a larger area in my mind. All right, so we're talking about uh, the budget. Would you believe if I told you $40 million? Uh, Well, it depends on the – usually the biggest expense is, like, big-name actor salary. And Sam Worthington, I don't think he made any money. Like when he was an Avatar, he was like a nobody. So I don't think he got a whole lot of money, even though that money, that movie made a billion dollars. Um, and I don't think he's done a whole lot since. So his price fee is probably in the single digit millions, like in the five million range, I'm guessing. Garfield's a bigger star, maybe in the 10 million range. And then Vince Vaughn, who knows how much he did it for, probably a couple million. And all the other actors, you know, they're probably getting scale or slightly more. And Hugo. So, yeah, Hugo. Hugo's a big name. He probably he probably commands a couple of mil easy. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna say probably uh, more than forty million. I'm gonna say more than forty because you got the actors. I mean, the actors alone are taking up at least twenty. And then you got all the production crew. You got all the special effects. Yeah. No, I'm telling than. you, it, it was forty. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, in the behind the scenes, they they say they asked for eighty, and they only got forty, and so they had to scrimp and save and be very very selective in where they shot scenes. They wanted to go to Lynchburg, Virginia, and uh, shoot at the actual hospital and and the movie theater there, but they actually had to find locations within Australia, and they uh-huh. had to qualify for government grants and tax incentives, and they had to have a certain number of Australian-born actors, and did you know that Mel Gibson, I always thought that he was an Australian guy. No, he's American. Supposedly. Yeah, but he, he spent enough he's time born in, in New Australia. Zealand, I think. Yeah, right. He grew up in, he grew up in Australia, right? He, like, spent, I think, like, it was probably, like, eight or nine or ten or something up into his early 20s. Right, and so I always but, thought of him as Australian, but, uh, yeah, apparently uh, he was there enough to get them to qualify for this tax break, which, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and, and many of the actors were, of course, Australian, like Hugo and um, I think Worthington and the the female lead, um, Teresa Palmer, and a bunch of the other, you know, extras and ancillary characters. Sure, um, yeah. But, yeah, so they, they, they did all of this under a, a very small budget relative to what they anticipated needing, and so they had to make a lot of um, – 
decisions uh, to, I, don't know, I think they did a good job with the amount of money they had. I think that it made them be uh, very, employ a lot of ingenuity. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, that's what happens, as I said before, talking about um, El Mariachi and those kind of movies, uh, Desperado, where you have a tiny little budget, you have to get creative and come up with solutions that you might not otherwise have to make. So you can do a lot with a little, and uh, that's cool. Really interesting. He, yeah, he definitely stretched that budget. Uh, the movie made like $147 million at the box office or something, 150-ish. So it definitely made money. So good job. Yeah, so why don't we do some final closing thoughts on this. Um, this is coming out the day before Memorial Day. Uh, it's a war movie. Uh, we thought that it would be pretty controversial because a lot of our opinions are um, not exactly supportive of um, military. I don't believe that my freedoms are bestowed upon me by government or by the military protecting me from some arch nemesis uh, boogeyman who has my freedoms over in the Middle East or in Japan or somewhere else where we have 150 uh, countries where a military base with the U.S. is in them. Um, so... Not to sidetrack yeah, too much, but what are your final thoughts on this movie? Yeah, you see those bumper stickers that are like, if you don't speak German, think of it, or something like that. And you're absolutely right. Uh, not only did Hitler not intend to ever invade the United States or whatever, but it's a lot of, a lot. I think a lot of um, glorification of the troops is, one, you've got to glorify the actions of the troops because the troops are the murderers, they're the killers. Yeah, the war war is the health of the state. That's uh, Randolph Bourne, right? That's his big quote. And you got to have, you got to treat those people as heroes, the ones that um, sacrifice themselves for this these horrific politicians and whatnot, because we're the cognitive dissonance, um, or else because you know the reality of it's far too horrible to imagine. So you have uh, a lot of, I think, um, you know, troop worship and that sort of thing. Because you want to have something to believe in, you want you can't you know, believe in the reality of the situation, and you also have probably some loved ones who are maybe in the military or or uh, fought in the wars. I know I did, but um, and so maybe you want to you know you want to honor their memory. You don't want to you know disrespect them and think that they fought for nothing and they threw their lives away and murdered other people for no reason and only contributed to the horror and pain and misery in the world. You not only want to be the hero in your own story, you also want to be associated with heroes and believe that other people and people that are around you and you love are good. So, yeah, uh, it perpetuates this cycle of violence, though. And, um, yeah, it's it's just really hard. It's just really, especially... I don't know. I don't know if there. I don't know if it's what it's like in other countries. Is there as much patriotic, like flag waving and soldier worship as it, there is around here? Uh, it certainly seems like there's more of it here. I mean, the United States is also probably the most you know, spends more on its military than the top other ten combined or whatever it is. Um, but. I mean, we're just like a very warlike culture, <laughs> but is it? I don't know. Are there other places in the world that is not so like this, where they look upon the soldiers as doing things wrong? Because it, usually it's like, you know, as long as they're playing by the rules and murdering people as they're supposed to murder people, 
they're they're good soldiers. But when they go rogue and then they, you know, they strangle, you know, a baby or they murder some woman they just raped or whatever, then they're bad and then they get court-martialed and then they go to jail because, you know, that's bad. But, you know, if you just murder on a battlefield, then it's all good and celebrated and whatever. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Dan? Do you think, do you think this is like, it's probably fairly universal, but there's got to be places in the world that aren't this bad. <laughs> I just want to believe. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to uh, it's hard to know without having the perspective of of being in another place. Though I do see a lot of um, Canadian television, just because of where I am, and there's a big um, you know poppy thing related to I think Veterans Day or Armistice Day um, for Canadians, and I know you know in traveling like. Even in other countries, you'll see the military get treated differently on the airplanes, uh, things like that. But I don't really ha- have a you know a wide understanding of it, though I think it's probably very prevalent here. It seems as if almost every holiday is somehow equated some form of military worship, uh, as is almost any sporting event these days. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. The sporting event is. If you don't like raise, take your hat off and put your hand to your chest when the the anthem is played, you're you know like frowned upon. And like, well, you got the color guard and you got the military flyovers and yeah, you got the whole regalia. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that the the NFL gets paid for that. Like uh, it's part of like the military budget. It's like the propaganda budget, probably. I don't know what they actually call it, but I know that uh, the NFL takes money for that. And I, I think there was a bunch of people like complaining and saying that the NFL should, shouldn't take money. Should, should just do it as a, you know, matter of patriotic pride to, to propagandize for the, uh, the military and whatnot. But uh, <laughs> at least it, there's some sort of maybe kind of market mechanism in place a little bit. Like they can't just, you know, propagandize eternally because eventually the money will run out or whatever. Like the budget for propaganda is only a certain size, so they can only do it so much. Yeah, and I also think there's a big involvement in um, movies and television as well, not just sporting events. Uh, like if you think back to Top Gun, which might be a, a movie that we could do at some point, though I don't, I'm not sure what we can Sequel's really- getting filmed. I don't really know what we could analyze from a Rothbardian and narco-capitalist perspective, but uh, I know that there was a lot of military involvement with that film being made, uh, a lot of cooperation from the military, and it was uh, at the end viewed as uh, one of the biggest and most successful recruiting vehicles that they could have ever imagined. Yeah, and um, yeah, Hollywood has a huge hand-in-hand role with the government. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but I think I've mentioned in the past, like Michael Bay, he does all the Transformers movies, and he did, like, The Rock and a bunch of, like, bombastic action movies. And for the longest time, he um, he had, like, full military support. Like, you know, we're in peacetime, whatever. You got you want to, like, shoot something on an aircraft carrier or whatever, go ahead. Um, and so he would always throw those, those things in the movies. Like, hey, I've got these airplanes and ships, and I can show them. And, hey, it's just, you know, taxpayer dollars. Who cares, right? I mean... <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> it only costs like what is it like thirty thousand dollars in fuel to have one aircraft carrier sailing around every day. Every day. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something ridiculous. Like how many gallons those things use. So it's like 
the number one polluter in this government if you're an environmentalist. So hello. But yeah, and that's uh, not they, even counting the the stewardship they have over lands that they claim dominion over. I mean, we're talking about just the military creating garbage and fuel and and being burned and other refuse. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's very much a lot of uh, collaboration between the government and Hollywood, and even if there isn't, um, that's the beauty of like indoctrinating a population. They'll propagandize for you for free. So even if the CIA or whoever didn't, you know, encourage this movie to be made or facilitate it or whatever, um, you'll get um, people just think this is a great story or feel have good feelings about World War II or, you know, U.S. involvement in war or whatever. Uh, these kind of things get made. And um, like I said, or like I mentioned and we talked about a little bit in the Lion King review, which we'll probably talk about at some point and when the sequel comes around, or the remake, um, you know, propaganda is probably best when you don't recognize it because when you, you know, when you see it's obvious, like some commercial for the Marines or whatever and how these valiant soldiers, you see like, like some medieval knight, you know, and he's like fighting a dragon and then it, you know, it's getting, he can morphs into like a modern day Marine and he's like serving his country and whatnot. And like, you're going to be a hero. And it's obvious propaganda, but when it's more hidden, when it's coming from, you know, some random person writes a book and tells a story about a thing and it just so happens to perfectly fall in lockstep with the government propaganda machine. It's uh, it's one of the fringe benefits of indoctrinating a society. Right, and it's also one of the things that um, once you come to our way of thinking and, and it's like the scales drop from your eyes and you see things in a very different light. And so if, if you want to get more of that, you know, do follow us, uh, check out actualanarchy.com and readrothbard.com. Also click on the uh, Tom Woods Liberty Classroom link. There's all sorts of um, information and, and, and uh, history and economics that you didn't learn in school. It's, it's very counter to what you may uh, think is true that just ha- doesn't happen to be true. Uh, isn't that a, um, is that a Yogi Berra quote or a um, – uh, That's a Mark see. Twain. It's, it's, it's not. It's not what you know for sure for true to be true, or it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just isn't true. I butchered it, but that's what it is. It's, it's what. It's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so that gets you in trouble. Right. Right. Exactly. So if you do want to get another perspective on things that you know we would argue is is more accurate and true, then check out our website actualenergy.com or the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. We've got a link for that on the right-hand side. Uh, we also got Amazon links. Uh, if you want to support the work that we do, you can check us out at um, patreon.com slash readrothbard, and you can support us there. A uh, bunch of ways you can support what, what we're doing. Uh, check us out on YouTube and Facebook and all those other areas. I feel like we can just kind of wind this show down. We've sort of said what we need to say at this point. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds good, man. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, like us, share us, review us, follow us on Twitter, you know, check us out. Um, every day you live free, make a more free world. Uh, you don't have to topple the dictator, just walk away. You don't have to uh, support the troops is supposedly what everybody says. You know, I support the troops. You 
you really don't have to support the murderers. Um, and I understand that they're, you know, your young sons and daughters. So you feel like you have to support them, but you don't have to support everything they do. Um, yeah, and if you are one of the troops, choice. if you are one of the troops, you know, like look within yourself and decide if that's what you want to really be doing. Um, you know, take a look. Yeah, at even if you're even if you're not in some combat role, you are supporting the machine of death. And you gotta. I hate to keep talking about this, but because um, you know it's a long episode, and we need to wrap this up. But um, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. And we were talking about all the war and the policing that the U.S. does all over the planet. And somebody wrote some book saying that, well, we do actually benefit economically. And that's like a really dumb argument because, yeah, of course, if you're raping and pillaging, you know, all these places and taking their natural resources, I mean, there was a reason why the British had an incentive to violently dominate and cover the entire planet. Of course, empire has its benefit as opposed to – but it also has comes at a cost. And you get blowback and you get all these moral, you know, dominating, violently dominating people probably has some sort of economic benefit. I'm not going to lie. It probably does on some level. But you will get a way better economic benefit from peaceful cooperation and voluntary exchange. So thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you for exchanging your time for listening to us talk about Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, we hope that we didn't offend you too much and we gave you at least something to think about. We will have copious number of uh, show notes for this one at actualanarchy.com slash 24. And uh, again, I thank you for joining us. My name is Daniel and Robert, why don't you say goodnight to our friendly, funky, freedom-loving folk. Oh, my freedom babies. If you did take offense to anything we said today, um, let us know about it. That's great. Let's have a conversation about this episode, these things. Um, these are huge, important issues in the world. Uh, whether you think of war is justified or not, I'd love to hear about it. Because uh, I've been convinced, and I'm sure most listeners of the show are convinced already, but um, maybe you're a new listener and you're just getting into these topics. And uh, you think that, uh, you know, there are such things as, moral wars i would say like daniel said earlier uh, a defensive war where you're just wanting to secede you wanting to leave you don't want to associate with these people anymore it's it's, it's justified but um if you did uh, let, us, let us hear now let us know about it get it to us on twitter get to us on facebook uh it'd be great and uh and just have a good life <laughs> take care of yourself take care of the people you love and tell someone you love them and have a good night Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do